Live from the MacGyver Project Studios in sunny, warm Wisconsin, it's Nick with the Outstanding Authors Podcast. My guest today is Marty Sklar, author of a new book called One Little Spark. To say that Marty is a big deal in the world of Disney is an understatement. Uh, in fact, I doubt that there's anyone alive today whose Disney career has had more impact than Marty Sklar. Well, he started working at Disneyland right before the park opened in 1955, and he's the only Disney employee who was present and involved with the opening of all 11 Disney theme parks throughout the world. He wrote copy for Walt Disney himself, and he held numerous leadership positions, including the president of Imagineering, the group that designs everything in the theme parks. He wrote his first book in uh, 2013 called Dream It, Do It, and his latest book, which came out in September, is called One Little Spark. Uh, In the first half of the book, he reveals what he calls his Mickey's Ten Commandments, a guideline for Imagineers. Uh, For example, the first commandment is know your audience. Uh, For each commandment, he gives an example from Disney history where the commandment was successfully followed and one example where it was not successfully followed. Uh, In the second half of the book, he provides feedback and advice that he solicited from around 75 Imagineers as to what qualities make a good Imagineer and how someone can become an Imagineer. Um, This podcast is a special one because my dad is on the line with me. Uh, We used to go on family vacations to Disney World uh, when I was a kid, and he uh, has run the Disney College program at his school for over 25 years uh, and has worked with over 500 students. Um, In fact, he was actually just down there a few weeks ago visiting his students, and he happened to see Marty at a book signing. My dad was glad to get a chance to talk with Marty on the podcast, and I was really glad to have him be a part of it. Uh, so with that, let's give Marty a call. Hello. Hi, Marty. Hi, this is Nick. Hey, thanks for your yeah. time today. Okay. I'm going to put you on my speaker. If that doesn't work, let me know. Okay? Great. Sure. Thank you. Um, yeah, um, so I'm Nick, and my father, Walter, is also on the line with us. Hello. Hello. Hello, hello. hello Walter. How are you? Good, thank you. Yeah, in fact, uh, my dad said that he actually just uh, ran into you at Disney Springs a couple weeks ago. Yeah, that's correct. It was uh, back in November, right? Right, right. Did you have a visit, Walker? I did, I did. I, I'm involved with a Disney college program, so I, uh, I had about a dozen students who uh, I was visiting in Florida when I was there uh, in mid-November. So uh, they've, uh, I've been involved with, I've been in charge of the Disney college program for about 27 years. Yeah, so today we, we wanted to just talk to you about your new book, um, One Little Spark, and also ask you some general questions about your various, about just some various Disney-related topics. Um, so I guess my, my first question is, where did you get the idea to write this book? Well, it really came from uh, going around the country talking about the first book I wrote, my Dream It, Do It uh, memoir that I wrote. And, you know, everywhere I went, um, I would have parents and grandparents and, best of all, young people come up to me and say, how do I become an Imagineer? And... Uh, I certainly didn't want people to think that there's only one path to any creative uh, endeavor. Uh, and so I, I decided to enlist uh, as many Imagineers as, as I could, could get to write something uh, because that would give us a diversity that uh, uh, different approaches, different ways people are prepared to be in a creative enterprise, uh, 
actually, I sent the, the note out, which the note is, uh, appears in the book. I sent the note out to uh, about 125 engineers, and to my uh, pleasure and a little bit of astonishment, I got 75 responses mm. uh, of people who have written something. And so then I had to figure out how to figure it, how to put it all together in the book, and the result is uh, what one little spark is all about. Yeah, the second part of the book uh, really does speak to that diversity because there are so many paths uh, that uh, the different Imagineers have taken and so many uh, observations that the different Imagineers uh, share with with the reading public. So it's a nice collaboration. It, and it actually it supports the whole concept of collaborative, collaborative effort on the part of the Imagineers. So often you say, it's not one person, it's, it's the collaborative effort that matters, you know. Well, I always uh, preached to uh, the Imagineers when I was leading the, the creative group that, you know, there's only one name on the door. That's Walt, uh, Walt Disney to this day. And uh, I think that's a great advantage that we have as an organization because you know you're not going to get your name in lights, and you have to be part of a team. And uh, the entertainment business, that's, everything is done really basically as a team, uh, whether you're working on a script or, uh, and, or whether you're uh, engineering something. Everything is a collaborative process, and I think that's the first thing that people have to get used to and, and accept. And once, once they do that, they, they will find that what comes out of a group experience like that, a group ever, is much stronger than what any one person. Okay. In, in your acknowledgments in the front of the book, you talk about the importance of uh, music as uh, a vehicle for people remembering, remembering the attraction and the movie and... Um, I'm curious about when a song is removed, and one of the one of the songs that you mention is uh, "Listen to the Land," which was the original um, uh, for the original theme for the boat ride in the uh, in the in the in the land pavilion. And when when things shifted from Kraft to Nestle's, uh, it uh, that song disappeared. Does does that sadden you when when a song that you really like and you associated with the pavilion uh, it just disappears? Well, that particular one, absolutely. Uh, and um, I have subsequently tried on a number of occasions to get uh, the Imagineering staff to find a way to get that song back in because I do think it represents exactly what we were trying to do in the pavilion. And uh, and it, it gave a very strong uh, continuity and, and uh, message that people could take away from it. And I've heard many people uh, say to me, we sure miss that song. And in fact, I have, uh, at some of my presentations, I had uh, Mike Iwerks at Walt Disney Imaginary put together a medley of the original songs that we had uh, in Epcot. It runs about four and a half or five minutes, and it really is a beautiful compilation. And the messages are so strong. Uh, and, you know, Bob and Dick Sherman 
did some, and, and uh, there were two or three of them that were uh, done. Uh, Randy Bright did one for the American Adventure. You know, they're very, very strong uh, story communication. And uh, I miss some of them, particularly uh, Listen to the Land. Okay. Yeah, well, I'm I'm one of those people who would love to see it come back. So if there's anything, you, if, if you know anybody, uh, <laughs> uh, I've always always wanted that song to come back. Well, I know that the, they're doing some thinking about what the future attractions are for it, mm-hmm. and that's one of the things that I've better note to the people who are doing it, uh, uh, reminding them that yeah. this was a song. And, I mean, it would be very easy to use at the end of the boat ride right now. Right, right. And with your book, um, uh, or actually before the book, how did you originally come up with the idea to do the Mickey's Ten Commandments? Well, that goes back a long way. Yeah. Uh, You know, when Epcot opened, I've got uh, so many requests from conventions and from uh, museums and from uh, corporations to uh, talk about how Disney does things. And so uh, I developed what I call Mickey's Ten Commandments. And uh, ten of them are, are in this book. There's actually 40 commandments now because uh, I, I then subsequently did uh, two different presentations about leadership, which I uh, made as the second and third uh of the Ten Commandments, if you will. And then I finally did one on followership, how to support uh, your leaders, uh, and uh, uh, the whole collaborative idea. And uh, so I always joke a little bit that Moses only had Ten Commandments, but I've actually got 40. <laughs> in, your, in the section of the book where you talk about keeping it up and maintaining it, you mentioned... Uh, Trinidad Louise as a, uh, a a really good cast member who was uh, involved with Custodial, and I just wanted to share this story with you. Most of what we're discussing is going to come from you, but my I had a student in, in 1994, in the spring of 94, who was on a college program, and her first name was Tara, and Tara took She's a farm girl from because I live in the the farm area of Pennsylvania near Allentown. She uh, was very proud of being the first female to be allowed to take the honey bucket down Main Street behind the horses, uh, and she wore that as a real badge of pride because uh, she felt that it was very discriminatory for women not to be able to do that. So uh, that small step of uh, success for females. Uh, much like the Jungle Cruise when it first started, I, I think there were only male skippers, and now there are male and female skippers. But Tara uh, was really had no problems having grown up on a farm, uh, being a, uh, a custodial hostess, and, and during the parade following the horses down Main Street to uh, she she referred to as the Honey Bucket, uh, doing the Honey Bucket. So I wanted to tell you about that young lady who was a, a little bit of a groundbreaker. So. Well, I'm sure she took great pride in uh, what she was doing, too, as Trinidad did. And that was one of the things that really impressed me, is that he understood that he was on stage and that he uh, was uh, uh, really became a star in many, many different ways because people wanted to take his picture. 
it was that throwback look that he, he had in his uh, all-white uniform. And I'm sure the young lady you're talking about is the same thing. And it gets back, Walter, to what we were talking about, that diversity, that uh, society has changed tremendously since Disneyland opened 60 years ago. And uh, that kind of opportunity for young women is one of the important things that have happened from a diversity standpoint uh, in the world and certainly at Disney. I rewatched on YouTube uh, the CBS special, October 23rd, 1983, uh, hosted by, uh, 82, I'm sorry, uh, hosted by Danny Kaye, and that was where Roy Clark actually sang on the boat. But one of the small segments on that was uh, Alex Haley was on, and he had a model of Equatorial Africa, and he actually said during the broadcast, uh, this should be this pavilion should be opening uh, sometime within a year or a year and a half. What happened to the Equatorial Africa Pavilion? Uh, I know there's an African section uh, when you pass China and you're going towards Germany. There is still a, 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 a an area where they have different exhibits, but the Equatorial Africa Pavilion never materialized. Is that well, because of sponsorship know, we, or something else? Oh yeah, we we uh, um, made pitches and and developed uh, ideas to, uh, to intrigue a lot of different countries. Uh, Switzerland, uh, I, I'm thinking just off the top of my head, Switzerland, Australia, uh, the Pacific Island uh, idea that we had, uh, the African pavilion. Africa was one, certainly one of the uh, pavilions. We had some wonderful uh, illustrations that Herb Ryman, Herb Ryman did. Herb Ryman, of course, did the first uh, uh, overall illustration of Disneyland and Walt Disney World, for that matter. And he did some beautiful uh, renderings that we used to promote the idea of the picture. And we were, we had the good fortune of having Alex Haley uh, work with us at that time. And we had a, a, a really good idea for a pavilion, but we could never get anybody to sponsor it. And in the uh, World Showcase area, that course is one of the one of the things that is uh, uh, necessary is to find the funds from either a country as in the case of Morocco for example or uh, sponsors corporations from the country involved which is most of the, the world showcase uh, has uh, companies from those countries that uh, are the sponsors, but we can never find enough uh, sponsorship from African nations. Just as a follow-up to the Herb Ryman reference, uh, uh, Nick's mom, my wife, uh, Elizabeth, has always moved when we go to the American Venture. There's a painting in there uh, called Promise of America, which Herb Ryman was responsible for, and it's a very moving. It's got the Statue of Liberty in the distance and immigrants on the shore. And he 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 must have been a very talented uh, individual to be able to produce so many uh, sketches and and just concepts and even that painting. It's a he, he must have been a very uh, special person. Well, he was the best, and you know, Walt had two or three favorites, uh, uh, and Herbie was one of them. And uh, um, we have, after Herbie died, um, there were six of us that, 
uh, including Sharon Disney Lund, one of Walt's daughters, and my wife and I, and Buzz Price and, and Ann Price, and Herb Ryman's sister, we formed a, 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 uh, an art program in Los Angeles, Southern California, uh, called Ryman Arts 25 years ago uh, to honor not only the Kirby as a quintessential Disney artist, but also he, he was a motivator and he spent time uh, with young people teaching them, including Imagineers, but anybody that, that uh, he found that really wanted to know how to draw. He was a graduate of the Chicago Art Institute, and he had a very strong opinion that an artist could do anything as soon as, as long as you learned how to draw first. And this program that we've had, we've now got, put, uh, oh gosh, uh, seven or 8,000 uh, young wow. people, high school age, through this program, all free of charge since we started 25 years ago. Now, we're on two campuses, uh, Otis uh, College of Art and, uh, and Al State Fullerton, uh, on weekends, they give us the classrooms, and every weekend, right now, we have about 350 kids uh, from all over Southern California participating in a program uh, named for Herbert Ryman. Okay. And I have a question about um, Fort Wilderness. Uh, when I was a kid, we used to stay there, and um, we would swim in river country, and I was wondering if you were involved at all in the development of Fort Wilderness or river country, and just if you had any stories or um, any background on that? Um, well, <laughs> I have a lot of memories. When we were building Epcot, that, that's where we stayed. In fact, we had, right. uh, yeah, because we, you know, they have some rental uh, uh, trailers there. And that's where we stayed, Jackrabbit Run, the 800 loop. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, uh, it, I must say that in, in those days I was jogging quite a bit, and it was a little... A, a, a little scary to go jog in that area uh, in an early morning before the sun came up uh, because there's so many animals in, the, in, the, in that area still. Uh, but anyway, the poor wilderness is a wonderful uh, environment, I think. And, uh, um, of course, the, the great show in the, um, in the restaurant there uh, that has been playing there, the Hoopty Doo show, mm -hmm. that's right. there since the beginning, is uh, one of the most popular things at Walt Disney World. And I think that's wonderful to have that kind of access by by boat and by bus to uh, all the areas of Walt Disney World uh, from your own trailer. And do you know um, if anything is going to happen with River Country? Like my dad said he heard a rumor that they were going to build a Disney Vacation Club there. I don't really know. Uh, okay. You know, what's amazing for uh, Walt Disney World today is uh, understand that there are 35,000 uh, different kinds of, of uh, places that you can stay at Walt Disney World, meaning hotel rooms, vacation club, camp, uh, uh, Fort Wilderness campground, etc. 35,000. It's incredible. Amazing. Uh, I, 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 in in 2002, the uh, stockholders meeting for Disney and, and, and my family are, are all stockholders, but 
they, they met in Philadelphia, and, and I, when I say stockholders, we're not big-time stockholders, a few hundred shares. But I, I went to the meeting, and that was the meeting where Michael Eisner, uh, had, there was an open feud between Stanley Gold, Roy Disney, and Michael Eisner. Um, and uh, I guess a few years later, Michael Eisner resigned as CEO and his spot on the board. Uh, do you have any thoughts on, any, on those two I, I know Roy Disney was instrumental in getting Michael Eisner and Frank Wells to come to the company from ABC Paramount, but over the years, obviously, they had a falling out. Do you have any thoughts on either of those two personalities, um, Michael Eisner or Roy Disney? Uh, that's uh, obviously Walt's nephew, uh, not 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 his brother. Any thoughts on that? Uh, because they were both instrumental in in, in doing great things for the company, but obviously there was a falling out. Well, you're absolutely right. It was uh, Roy Disney and Stanley Gold that got Michael Eisner and Frank Wells to uh, come to the company in the first place. And, you know, the first 10 years uh, before uh, Frank Wells passed away were really magic. Uh, and you, if you look at that period with uh, all the great animation films, uh, uh, Aladdin and Beauty and the Beast and and The Lion King and wow that was fantastic period for the company and also in the park business after all we we built the the studio we built Paris we we expanded Disneyland we uh, and Michael built uh, so many hotels uh, with name architects so that was a really rich period in the in the company. I, I think ch things changed, obviously, after Frank Wells passed away, and it wasn't the same kind of relationship over time. But, you know, both of those people uh, were immense contributors to uh, to the Walt Disney Company, the growth under Eisner and Wells and, and Roy's uh, uh, strength of uh, rebuilding the animation organization. Uh, that was a very, very rich period creatively and economically for the company. Uh, I wouldn't denigrate either one of them. Okay. There were great periods, and sometimes uh, people stopped getting along for whatever reason. Uh, okay. But if you think, if you look at the the uh, record that both of them had in the company, it's pretty astounding. Okay. Thank you. And uh, in your book, you talk a lot about the guest experience, and I was wondering, um, uh, I, I was just in Disney World in September, uh, which is normally like one of the most um, uh, uncrowded times, but I was kind of surprised just how really crowded it was, and I was curious if Disney that you know of is doing anything specifically to improve the guest experience where overcrowding is concerned. Well, I think they've done quite a bit. If you look at the whole My Magic program, uh, mm. where uh, they made all those <clears throat> all those bracelets so that you can access re the restaurant, make reservations, mm -hmm. uh, a whole bunch of different things to try to alleviate the fact that there's a lot of people coming. You know, I remember the, the first uh, Christmas season at Walt Disney World, and it was so crowded, uh, and I, I was there, and I started talking to people, and I said, why don't you come in, in January uh -huh. instead of during the Christmas season? And they say, hey, 
our kids are out of school <laughs> we can bring the family here so it's pretty hard to to say what is the best time and what is not the best time to uh, 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 go to Walt Disney World, for example, or Disneyland, for that matter, or any of the parks around around the world. But uh, there's a lot being done continually to try to make the guest experience easier, to make uh, it possible for people to make reservations in advance, uh, and a whole slew of things that have changed that uh, uh, to make it easier for guests uh, who are uh, coming to the park, whatever time of year you come. Uh, um, I, I agree. I think it just, when I see the changes uh, for the positive, for to, to, to everything from line management to, uh, it's, just, it's just terrific uh, as from, from my perspective. But I, I, was, I have a, a sort of a different train of thought here. Just a, a couple more questions. How close did Disney's America uh, in that Washington, D.C., Virginia, Maryland area, uh, did, did, it, did it come close to fruition, or was it was it dead on arrival? Or uh, I, I remember that time when there was some enthusiasm for for the park in the in the D.C. area, and it, it never happened. Well, uh, unfortunately, if you in retrospect, it probably was dead on arrival because of the people. Uh, from the horse country, if you will, in that area who did not want their environment to be changed uh, and have a whole bunch of tourists coming through continually. So from that standpoint, um, I think it probably, in, in retrospect, it was. Uh, I remember being on the site with Michael Eisner and, and Bob Weiss, who is now uh, responsible for the Shanghai project, as a matter of fact, uh, and he was going to be the imaginary in charge of that. And uh, we were really excited about the potential of the site and to talk uh, stories about America, which I think uh, are badly needed to talk about the kinds of things that we were going to do in that part. And also, I think the whole experience of visiting Washington could use a lot of help uh, from a, uh, the standpoint of people who know how to handle uh, large numbers of people and to move them around. Uh, so uh, we were all disappointed that it didn't happen. But in retrospect, there were a lot of people who were, lived in that area and didn't want their environment. And uh, they made sure that it didn't. Okay, and I'll go back even further now. When when I was in high school, uh, I uh, visited the New York World's Fair well over a dozen times, and, and had wonderful memories from everything from eating a Belgian waffle to seeing the Pietà and the Vatican Pavilion. But the four Disney pavilions, uh, the Small World for Pepsi, and the Ford Pavilion, and GE Carousel of Progress, and and of course, uh, great moments with Mr. Lincoln, the Illinois Pavilion, were my were my absolute favorites. That must have been an exciting time for Walt too, because he was obviously he was still alive, and he must have been really energized. Uh, do you have any any were you involved in that, and 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 do you have any thoughts about the the New York World's Fair? Oh yeah, that was uh, that that was why uh, Walt brought me up from Disneyland to, to work on the originally on the Ford Pavilion, and then I worked on the 
uh, a number of things in the, in the carousel, the GE Pavilion, Progress Land, it was called, and, and uh, some on It's a Small World. So, yeah, that was um, my big uh, uh, step from being a publicist to all of a sudden being part of the creative team. And uh, it was a great experience, and, and uh, Walt was so smart about that. And we didn't even un quite understand it at first, but he kept taking on these projects like It's a Small World 11 months before the fair opened. And it seemed impossible in many ways, but we all jumped in. Uh, but the big thing was that, that he owned everything in those pavilions uh, that related to Disney. And all of it came back to Disneyland. And so but when it came back to Disneyland, 65, 66, 67, it expanded Disneyland tremendously. Carousel Progress uh, opened in Disneyland in 1967. The dinosaurs from Ford on the, in 1966 on the railroad tracks. Uh, Lincoln Show actually opened in 65 while it was still playing in New York. And of course, it's a small world. It's a Small World came back from the World's Fair, uh, lock, stock, and barrel, including the water trough, everything, uh, and opened in Disneyland in 1966. So it was a huge expansion of, of Disneyland that was paid for by these other companies while Walt was being what Look Magazine called the giant of the fair, which he actually was. And the other thing that happened was, uh, and this Nobody seemed to be aware of this at the time, but the first uh, piece of land or, uh, in, in Orlando was purchased almost the same month that the World's Fair opened, 1964. So uh, Walt was already uh, planning, uh, once he had the land, uh, what he was going to do at, at Walt Disney World. Okay. Nick, do you have any other questions? No, I don't. Thank you very much, Marty, for your time. It was a lot of fun. Yes, we, we enjoyed it, and we enjoy all of your uh, – and, and and your sensitivity to responding to letters. I, I actually wrote to you probably 25 years ago with a question, and you wrote back. It was long before email days, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very I impressed with your concern for guest experience, and I we, we both wish you good health and, uh, and, and a continued long life inside or outside of Disney. Well, thank you, and uh, keep up the good work on the college program. It's really a <laughs> good way to get somebody's feet wet in the business, isn't it? It really is, you know, and, and I, 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 I've made a friend in Dan Cockrell, uh, who's, I know you know his father, Lee, and, and he well, started out of college. For well, too. They're terrific. Yeah. I, I saw Dan when I was there uh, uh, in November, and and uh, he's a good example of people who start off, and, and of course John Lasseter, uh, who starts on, started on the Jungle Cruise, and Steve Martin. There's there's a whole collection of people who who start in the parks at the lowest level and and, and uh, work their way up. Yeah, Steve uh, Martin uh, uh, in one of his uh, books about uh, his. Uh, um, live performances as quite a bit about Disneyland in the early days. Okay. Well, again, anyway, best wishes for a healthy 2016, and thank you for your time. Well, thank you both, and, and the same to you. 
the family. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Have a good day. Bye. All right. Bye. So thanks very much to Marty for talking to us, and thanks to my dad for being a part of it, too. Uh, that was a ton of fun. There's no limit on the subjects to talk about with Marty. He's seen it all, and we could have peppered him with questions for hours on end. Um, I like what he said about the Listen to the Land uh, boat ride song, and maybe someday the Imagineers in charge of the pavilion will listen. Um, I'll, I'll get in, into a little more in a future blog post, but there's absolutely no reason that that song couldn't be, easily be re-added to the opening section. Um, you wouldn't have to change the song at all, and you could keep the ride as Living with the Land. Um, but I digress. Uh, once again, the book is called One Little Spark, uh, so go out and read it and buy it today. Uh, and as always, if you have any questions or comments for me, feel free to contact me at sweeto37 at gmail.com. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Project MacGyver and read my blog at themacgyverproject.blogspot.com. Thank you. <laughs>